it's maybe not so difficult to get one sensational shot. All right, do not turn that motherfucking clock on. You're listening to the One Sensational Shot Network. I'm Fletcher Walton and thank you for joining us on the Evening Glass. All of 2019 we've been looking forward to putting down an issue devoted to Spike Lee's Do The Right Thing, which celebrates its 30th anniversary this year. For going on two decades it's been among my very favourite films, and for the honesty in its discussions, for its wit, for its vitality, and for the brio and skill of its filmmaking, I think it's probably the best American film of my lifetime. Concerning its filmmaking, tune in to November's Dispatch from the Electronic Labyrinth, in which me and Luke Littleboy try to explain how it works and why it works. Here on the Evening Glass, this issue I'm joined by Comedy's Aidan McCaffrey, a Spike Lee novice and Do The Right Thing debutante, to chat about what the picture means to him and to 2019. It's a conversation in which we aimed to reflect the truths of the film discussed, and we hope you'll find it's one we've approached with due precision and sensitivity. First year that Aidan ever saw Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. Now uh, you say that with a glint in your eye. <laughs> I've known the film for twenty years, and for the last ten, and definitely the last five, I've come to consider it as probably the best film, the best Hollywood film in my lifetime. And I think you somewhat viewed it at my behest because I talked about it often. Yes, but it's a weird thing. I mean, I like you, am someone who, when I was a kid, was reading film encyclopedias. <laughs> So yeah. I sort of was always known about it. But then I sort of, you did get me thinking, like, why have I not watched that film? Because there's loads of films, like adult films like that, that I, that I watched when I was younger. And it, made, it got me reflecting, well, did I seek films out or did I just read about them? And then once I stumbled upon the chance to watch them, watch them. Because I couldn't figure out why I would have watched, say, Taxi Driver, but not watched Do the Right Thing. Um, I mean, maybe it's a race thing. Maybe it's just films about white folks appeal to me more. Actually, I just wonder if, was there some quirk? Like, it wasn't on TV much, and therefore I never got to tape it or whatever? I, I don't know. Either way, I watched it. I reckon it definitely wasn't on television as much as Scorsese's Gangster Pictures, so specifically Goodfellas and Casino. Yeah, I've got a literal memory of watching that, and my mum saying, no, they've said the F word Ten times in two minutes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and me arguing her down to the point where she just acquiesced and let me watch it. <laughs> yeah, and this one little guy says nothing but the f word and the mf and the s, and it's it's just terrible. Um, <laughs> I know how I got. I know what my access point for do the right thing was. Uh, I was getting into cinema at the end of the nineties. He got game came out in ninety eight. That must have come onto Sky Movies in sometime in ninety nine or towards the end of ninety nine, and I took that opportunity to acquaint myself with. All of this, and um, I was lucky enough that in a over a three-year. We say all of this. Do you mean sh- everything from she's got to have it onwards? Yeah, I'll, no, honestly, I'll I'll take you through it. So, School Days was on Channel Four in about ninety-eight. So I recorded that two in the morning. Uh, she's got to have it. I've got a copy of somewhere. It must have been someone must have shown it somewhere, and I reckon it was the studio. Do the right thing. I picked up off Sky Movies, where I also got Girl Six, Clockers. He got Game. Summer of Sam. Um, actually, Girl 6 might have been Channel 5. In just a, a 24-month period, maybe even only 18 months, I had access to uh, six or seven key Spike Lee joints. Original Kings of Comedy came out at the turn of the century, so that came to Sky as well. Didn't quite understand that. Do you know about that one? Performance. It was. Um, firstly, this is what you like when you're a child. It, I heard the name and I thought, 
Bert Scorsese has a film called King of yeah. Comedy. What do you mean original Kings of Comedy? What are you trying to say about Marty? It's the sequel. It's like the Aliens to Alien. <laughs> yeah. Just have more Kings of Comedy. And it's, um, I don't know if I'll get this, the uh, lineup exactly right, but it's a, it's a performance picture. Two hours, about 40 minutes with each, 30 to 40 minutes with each stand-up. And it's DL, I think it's DL Hewley, Cedric, Steve Harvey and Bernie Mac. And my, as an introduction to African-American humour, it was um, possibly too strong for me. I didn't connect with it immediately. I, yeah. I, I better understood it maybe 10 years later. But I still did find elements of the Bernie Mac performance excellent. Um, I suppose the only touchstones I had for uh, comedy, like concert movies then were No Cure for Cancer by Leary and Jerry Seinfeld, so I'm telling you for the last time, and some Izzard. Everybody knew Izzard when yeah. I was in sixth form. What was it? Dressed to Kill was a big one, wasn't it? Uh, I, th I think all, uh, all of them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there was definite article. I think was his very first one. Right. Which, but then yeah, I'm pretty sure like Dress to Kill, Glorious, because I, th I think he pretty much got massive straight after uh, whatever the second one, the first one that came after definite article was. Yeah. I mean, not to say that he was an overnight success. Like you can find footage of him on ITV, you know, doing weird bit comedy like 1986. Yeah, yeah. But but hey, that's comedy for you. It's a long As slog. You know. Yeah. So I was interested in what Do the Right Thing means to someone who's never seen it before and who's watching it for the first time in 2019. I've felt that there's never been a point over the last two decades that it hasn't been relevant. Any year in which you watch it, you can say it's still relevant in as much as not just that its themes are still present, but that they've never gone away. It, it honestly does feel as fresh in 2019 or 1999 or 2005 as it did in 1989 and as Aidan uh, we were chatting just before we went to air and I'm nervous about I'm nervous about paying paying tribute to what I consider to paying be paying due homage yeah that a, a film that's as integral to North American cinema as literally any you could name yeah <laughs> and and then Aiden said, "By the way, I saw it once six months ago, and uh, we're going to have to lean on you, Fletch." Yeah, <laughs> I thought, oh, well, you know. Let's begin with. Let's begin with your interaction with "Do the Right Things" reputation in the the months and weeks before you finally sat down to watch it. So, always been aware of it. I have a fairly encyclopedic knowledge of films, even ones I haven't seen. Uh, even as a kid, my family thought it was weird that. I would talk about The Godfather having never seen it. <laughs> right, yeah. Like, I just knew weird stuff. Like, oh, yeah, it won three Oscars. Best film, best actor, best adapted screenplay. Like, have you seen The Godfather? No. Yeah. But, you know, it generated an interest. And then I eventually did watch it and love it. Um, so Do the Right Thing is always something I've been aware of. If you ever listen to any... I mean, Oscars aren't the be-all and end-all. But if you ever listen to any Oscar chat, it's one of those films that's cited as, like, it was the best film of the year. And yet, Driving Miss Daisy, you know, a film with a more reductive uh, uh, view of um, take on race, yeah. ended up winning best best film that year. So it's always, you know, it gets thrown into that kind of, you know, Forrest Gump versus Pulp Fiction kind of discussion. Um, and then, yeah, just Friends of the Union, you just bang on about it all the time. <laughs> oh, Actually, right. a lot of my friends probably haven't seen it, to be honest. Um, which maybe says something about the friends I keep. Um, <laughs> First of 28 interjections during the course of the next yeah. 90 minutes, but heads know it. Me and Espen know it. Oh, yeah, because we're in a public enemy. know it, but... but but specifically, I think it's a key. It's a touchstone for people who are into Daisy Age rap, who know De La Soul, who know uh, Public Enemy specifically and KRS-One, and I think that there's a, a whole section of cineasts who aren't into rap. And I mean, what what I'm saying is, if you're into hip hop, 
you know it because yeah. Public Enemies Fight the Power is the song from Do the Right Thing and there's no way that you would That's the one that opens it, isn't it? Yeah, it's like being into Run DMC and having never seen Tougher Than Leather. You just would. Yeah, yeah. And the same with, um, I think American Gangster did something similar about 12 years ago. Jigger did the soundtrack for that and anybody who was into Jay-Z would definitely have sought out, because that was an interesting one. It wasn't music featured in and inspired by, it was strictly Jay-Z saw that movie and made an album about what he thought of the milieu of uh, yeah. Ridley Scott's American Gangster. Very unusual. Yeah, I forgot he did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's all right as well. It's, it's a good album. Very good album. Good film fact. as well. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit underrated. I've heard people really dismiss that. It's like, really? American Gangster? It's really solid. And then um, it specifically came out of a conversation about our friend Chris said, <laughs> he said something like, it was something weird. He said something like you can't have an opinion on cinema or something if you haven't seen Do the Right Thing. He said that. Oh, it was, sorry, I, it was, I'm making what he said far too broad. But he said something I took against. No, he, no I think, actually, I think what he just said was, feel free to cut in at this point, you have to have watched Do the Right Thing, you have to see it or something. Sounds like something I'd say, yeah. doesn't it? But, yeah. yeah, he's right. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you don't have to watch it. <laughs> I was being right. really dismissive. Like, you don't yeah. have to watch anything. Um, but I think I was just making a sort of slightly broad, like, I think I sort of always irk at any kind of cultural elitism. <laughs> so that's probably yeah. more why I was taken against what he was saying. Um... And uh, and then you said something like the first Spike Lee film you probably saw was Inside Man, and it was. <laughs> <laughs> you were calling me out on it. It was the first one I saw. Hey, it's a solid film. What can I say? And yes, yeah, so I just I thought, well, fair enough, might as well watch it. Always take a recommendation, and it was excellent. I mean, actually, it was. It's amazing. You were talking a minute ago about does it hold up? I mean, it totally holds up beyond all. Now I'm a, I'm a, a a white person who you know hasn't grown up with. Um, Obviously, any any real kind of experience of what's going on in this film. Having said that, I did take one direct connection to my life, which was, you know, in this, this might be a bit of an obvious thing to say, but like I worked in a, or a mostly black office where it was like 80% black. It was like eight black women, mostly middle-aged. Uh, me, <laughs> a young black guy uh, who was similar, quite similar to me in interest. We were both quite nerdy, like science fiction and stuff, and an old Polish lady. And I just remember observing, and this was like 2008-9, observing like, wow, I couldn't get away with saying half the shit these people say to each other. Like, very racial, the conversation's always quite racially charged, you know. Jamaican women saying, oh, you don't want to date a Ghanaian man, and all that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah. And I'm just thinking, Christ, I'd never <laughs> get away with this. Um, and it's one of the most strike. it's one of the striking things about the film, is just this sort of weird, like, a demography that's just clashing, and like, the sort of brazen racism that's sort of just constantly rubbing up against each other. I'm not really sure what my comment on it is, but I just, I just it was like the only thing in my life that I could possibly connect it to was uh, watching how these women interacted and then seeing how this black community and the Italian community interact. And the bit always sticks out in my mind is when they look directly into the camera and you see each one of them spitting out as many racial slurs as they possibly could. Yeah. Um, which you wouldn't get away with in a lot of films, but the film is such a smart and honest portrayal of, of what these uh, cultures are like that it just it totally fits uh, the, the sort of milieu of what he's talking about. There's a tension there, and it's one that I grew up with watching the real McCoy, not the Val Kilmer, Kim Basinger. I think it's Kim Basinger, but there's a Val Kilmer film called The Real McCoy from the early 90s. Not that, but the early 90s, um, specifically black and urban comedy show from BBC Two. And that had Felix Dexter, who was also on The Fast Show, uh, did a character called Nathaniel, who is West African. 
but you could say he's racist against West Indians. And he comes at it's just beautiful. And I've shown Thorpe as well. She digs it too. And that was my first interaction with, oh, it's not that it's not black people. Black people are from all sorts of places. And so yeah. Nathaniel comes, Felix Dexter comes out as Nathaniel in front of the studio audience. He's dressed in a, a suit. He has his briefcase. Excuse me. Excuse me. I'd just like to say something. <laughs> my name is Nathaniel. I'm from Lagos. I'm a studying accountancy. I said I'm studying accountancy. Thank you. And what I have noticed, I've been noticing the language they are talking in the sketches. They're not speaking very good English. And what I'd like to do is to teach some of you West Indians, especially the Jamaicans, speak the Queen's mother's language. <laughs> How to speak the Queen's mother's language. Right. What I've noticed, you're mucking about with your H's all the time. What you are doing, if there is an H, if there is an H in front of the vowel, you are taking it away. <laughs> and if there's not supposed to be one there, you are putting one in. <laughs> so, in your own accent, can you please pay attention? to do this. My father's a very rich man. Thank you. <laughs> Can you please pay attention? Thank you. So what you are doing, in your own accent, you are saying things like, my friend Archibald was in the hospital. They are keeping him in overnight for a observation. Because he's having a operation on his hernia. Please stop doing that. The point of Nathaniel's character is, as a West African, uh, he considers himself more British and essentially more educated than West Indians. And that's what my first interaction with, oh, wow, like... Yeah. And, and Do the Right Thing has the same thing, where um, the, the Greek chorus, the Afro-Greek chorus, as they've been called, uh, Sweet Dick Willie, ML, and Coconut Sid... Um, sitting out there uh, putting the neighbourhood to rights against the Red Wall, you remember the characters. Yeah. Um, Frankie Faison plays uh, Coconut Sid and he's latterly known in The Wire, but he was in the um, in Hannibal Lecter films as well. They're talking about the Koreans that have opened up a shop across the road, uh, as ML says, a shop that had been boarded up for longer than he cares to remember, and then within two years the Koreans, they get to America, they open up the shop, now they're running their own business, and uh, Coconut Sid is... Uh, critical of that as well and sweet dick willie quite reasonably he says uh, i'm going over there i'm going to spend my money and what are you talking about coconut you're off the boat yourself <laughs> and you think oh yeah you know there is there's there's a tension there and i've wondered about this watching um donald glover's atlanta i've wondered about that tension you watch it don't yeah, you? yeah i've seen all of it there's an episode where they go to a black owned club but the club is owned by an african american an african american not an african american sir did you just pay with that $100 bill outside? Uh, yeah. Well, that $100 bill was fake. You need to come with us. What? What do you mean? That bill you used was fake. Let's go. Are you sure it was mine? You're the only one that's paid with the $100 bill. All right. You see? Right there. There's the watermark. No, no. You did that. I did that? What do you... No, just just get another hundred to compare it. Yeah, I know all that hundreds in the bar. And you got one of those... 
One of those pens that you can market with? Of course not. How do you even know it's fake? I know, okay? Here, try and rip it up. What? What are you talking about? That makes no sense. I'm not falling for your tricks. You know what? It's fine. Just, just give me the, give me the money back. I'll, I'll leave. Yeah, but you already came inside. You still need to pay. Hurry up! Oh my fucking god! Hey, we all know that the bill was real, but I don't know it's tripping. Sorry about that. That was definitely racist. What I got from that interaction is Ern's black, Van's black, the security of the club is black, the club owner is black, but he's an African immigrant and he's thinking in the way that the white establishment encourages people to think. Interesting. And before then, but subsequently, I've often wondered, yeah, what do African immigrants to North America think of the African-Americans that they meet there? And in the case of <laughs> the, the depiction in Atlanta, that they were thinking like white establishment. So, yeah. Not I, to justify... Uh, white not to justify white racism in any way. You're not saying it's it's not a justification of of white <laughs> white prejudice that he has that prejudice as well. It's just interesting that it kind of exists within black culture. Yeah, yeah, and I've considered because um, this nation's we've had African immigration for broadly speaking sixty years, I suppose. America's had it for less than half that time. Significant African I'd, immigration. Well, Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Other than those that were forcibly so, yeah. moved from their, you know, <laughs> that's what I villages. genuinely yeah, what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's, uh... no. Um... I really like filmmaking where it's honest and real, but it's also highly stylized. Just to put it in a in a purely aesthetic uh, context, yeah, it's it's a vibrant film. Like it just pop it pops off the screen. You know the, yeah. where the cameras move, the way it's cut. It's sort of of its time, but in a cool way, like with the the opening song and the sort of woman. Is she like boxing to fight the power? Have I made that up? Yeah, she is. Yeah, yeah she's boxing. Yeah, to Rosie, fight the power. The, 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 Rosie Perez. Yeah, picture opens with Rosie Perez in a variety of outfits dancing and then at one point boxing against um, a screen projection of uh, Bedford-Stuyvesant Street, so that the brownstones. And, uh, yeah, Which is a really interesting way to kick off that film because yeah. it's, so, it's a very realistic film and yet you're, you're actively launching it with something that's theatrical and artificial, yeah, literally yeah. a projection of the street that it's going to be set on. That's a weird way to open it, but it works. And re-watching it, I noticed that it's... Um, it's a very interesting combination of stagey and cinematic. Uh, well, like them talking down the camera doing the racial epithets. That's yeah. stagey. That's artifice. Who are they talking to? But then, then also... But it doesn't break the film. This is what's no, really no, cool no. about it. Just at, at, at numerous points during the film, the interactions between Demare and mother-sister, where she's uh, set against her window looking over the stoop, and she's uh, talking down to Demare, who's on the street behind the fence... 
that feels stagey. Their, their interaction feels Stentorian in um, a Clifford Odette's way, and so does the arrangement of the... You might remember Martin Lawrence has a small role. Yes. And he's one of the four people that are just hanging out on the street, the, the lady and, and the three dudes. They're often on the steps, and their arrangement is just like watching a play, the way they take turns to speech, yeah. to speak. And it's, it's a rare instance where I understand, oh, that's what hyperrealism is. Because yeah. I never really understand the term hyperrealist, but I understand it in the context of do the right thing. Oh, I've misinterpreted, if that, you're right, I've misinterpreted hyperrealism then. I think of hyperrealism as being like Ken Loach. <laughs> oh, uh, no, but that's, I, I'm that's just realism. Oh, fair enough. Yeah, but hyperrealism, I always wonder to myself, what is it? But we do the right thing, I understand it. The cinematography by Dickerson is like Storaro in Apocalypse Now. And while watching it, you forget that actually nothing ever looks like this in real life. We think that Vietnam looks like Apocalypse Now, it couldn't possibly have looked like that. And do the right thing, do the right thing looks like Bedstuy, but it doesn't. But somehow it does. Yeah. We, our eyes don't see like that, but it is the realist representation of what heat looks like. Yeah. Like a sunny day in Brooklyn, even though we've never been there. Yeah. And staying on the style and the aesthetic, I guess a big part of its appeal at the time is the songs and the fashions are very true to what was uh, cool then, specifically in black culture. And... It's interesting. It's it sort of has dated, but in a positive way. Because I always think there's two kinds of dating. There's when something dates and it's like, oh, that's not working anymore. Whether yeah. it's some cultural idea like race, uh, like Bernard Manning, whether it's just something like, oh, the special effects in this have, don't look so great anymore, do they? Mm. Um, but then there's a sort of positive dating where it's like it's so of the time, aesthetically, the way the way it looks, the way they dress. So it just has that appeal. Um, like you can step back in time, you can step into this world which no longer exists. But it's testament to the strength of its themes that it is still massively relevant today. I mean, it might be the case that if you ever make a decent film about race that has something interesting to say, that it will always be relevant, unless you believe that you will one day live in a post-racial society, which I, I'm not sure if we ever will. I, I, sorry, I need to think this through before I say this. I think I, I'm not like a total cynic. Things obviously are getting better you know i'm on barack obama's side in this it's like you can't look at the 1950s and 60s and look at now and not say there hasn't been progress but at the same time it feels for every bit of progress you get a kickback which i yeah. guess is what trumpism and tea partyism was so if you make a strong film about race that's got interesting to say in theory it should always be relevant because it's there's always going to be like a, a tribalism to society Rewatching it i better understood the affiliation that Hollywood has with one kind of race film and doesn't have with another kind of race film. And it's the... And we saw it with um, Hollywood taking to Green Book, which is a, a, perfectly, a perfectly pleasant film, but without a lot of honesty to it. And principle among that, I, I don't always make this argument, but casting Viggo Mortensen, one of the most famous Scandinavian actors, putting him as an Italian-American, that's not honest. That's an, oh. It's an opportunity for honesty, which has been lost in the same way. Okay, that but, do you, but do you think do you think roles should always go to the demographic? No, I don't. However, um, with the films about race that Hollywood likes, are the films that are set in the past: Driving Miss Daisy, Green Book, Dances with Wolves. Do you not think it would be more accurate to say Hollywood likes films that don't make people um, that don't ask white people to feel bad about it? They, they like, Which I guess you would get naturally from setting a film in the past. Yeah, what what Hollywood... It's, it's, I mean, I think with the Green Book, it's more than just that it's in the past. It's that when Vigo's being racist, 
like when he goes to the toilet and takes his wallet with him. Yeah. It literally plays Tinkery, this is a funny moment music. Yeah. So it says to the audience, hey, it's just, it's just an old-fashioned guy. Isn't this funny? And it's like, well, no, it's not. Yeah, that's what... That's... I, I maintain that Green Book would be a better film if it didn't have the score on it. Yeah. You'd lift it off and it would be totally very different. Because my, my feeling at the time was it's, 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 it's not a great film, but there is a better film trying to get out. But Farrelly doesn't really know what he's doing with the subject yeah, matter. And yeah. his instinct is to just make it all funny. Which, in most circumstances, wouldn't, as someone who's a comedian, isn't, <laughs> isn't a bad thing. But in this, yeah, yeah. I think it is. What Hollywood's problem is that it's, it feels much, much more comfortable lauding pictures that talk about racism as it was at a time other than the present. Because you, you can inherently feel less guilty about it. Yeah, now Crash is... Uh, Paul Haggis's crash is uh, uh, an argument against that, but when it came to driving Miss Daisy's representation of race and do the right things representation of race, um, you could see there that uh, essentially no Caucasian North American audiences were much more willing to accept that racism was something that happened in the 40s, 50s and 60s, that some white people had uh, their, their prejudices eroded and that was something that we've moved past now, and aren't we all better for it? It's the same with Green Book. And it'll be one of the same with dances. It'll be the same people who think, the same kind of people who say, "Oh, we elected a black president, therefore racism is over." Yeah, there was their, their equivalent in the eighties would have been people who went, "Well, civil rights happened, so we're cool now, right? Yeah. Right, guys, we're cool, and we the, can move on." And there are black lawyers and black doctors, and the Cosby Show, yeah. and Dr. Huxtable, and any number of signifiers which show that yes those uh, those avenues are now available to african americans but this is one of the one of the um one of the great things about spike lee's work in fact possibly his central thesis is that black people are all sorts of people they're, they're everything there are poor black people there are dr black drug addicts there are also a, a black middle class which is well, the, the, the class that spike to lee be blunt, comes from there's likable black people and there's black people who are dicks yeah and I, <laughs> radio I, rahim is a dick yeah th this is one yeah. of the, well, one of the the, the um one of the boldest decisions I think that the film makes is that it's central triumvirate of what uh, Ed Guerrero in that little book I showed you because I've been rereading that. What Ed Guerrero calls uh, mad prophets. You've bugging out Radio Rahim and Smiley. Smiley literally can't get his message across. He has a stammer and uh, a pr presumably cerebral palsy, although it's never really properly explained. So although he's extolling the virtues of Dr. King and Malcolm X and both sides. Uh, you know, violent and non-violent resistance. Uh, his physical disability prevents him from making any sense. Rahim seems mainly like a bully. The only way that he can communicate is through the boombox. Funnily enough, when he puts it down and he does his love, hate, love, hate, you remember? Yeah. yeah. He's very eloquent, really articulate. And bugging out, he's like those, um, the, the poor bastards that we see outside the abortion clinic where you really appreciate their dedication to a yeah. cause, but it's so misplaced. Yeah. And, and those are the three people that we're presented with. And then, as you've said, it's Raheem that dies. It's not one of the likeable characters. It's a borderline unlikable character that dies. And Spike Lee challenges us to still feel sympathy yeah. in that situation. I think that's really daring. We could talk about the ending, because a lot's been said about the ending. And I thought one of the most shocking things in it uh, and this is a spoiler. We're going to talk about the end of the film. So I know you hate spoiler alerts, but I'm throwing <laughs> one in. Um, is when he throws the... Uh, what is the name of Spike Lee's character? Mookie. Mookie throws the bin through the window yeah. as the riot's kicking off. I was, he, where he starts the riot. Yeah. I was, it up, says, hate, yeah, throws it through the window. And I was really shocked by that. Right. It genuinely, it was one of those powerful moments in the film. 
uh, reading up this afterwards, Spike Lee thinks he's criticised white audiences for finding that more shocking than Radio Rahim's death. However, I'm going to try and defend it. <laughs> Go ahead. No, that's interesting. Go yeah. ahead. I think it's the reason it's uh, more shocking is is two reasons. Uh, the first one, and this is the less, this is not the main one. It's a sub reason. Is the fact is we're not that, uh, especially now. I don't know what it was like in 1989. But the fact is we're not that surprised by police brutality or the idea that a police officer is going to kill an unarmed black man, right? Yeah. yeah. So that's one part of it. The second thing is, and I think it's more to do with this, is that um, Mookie is the main character. And the film sort of engenders you to sort of... Well, one, it's called Do the Right Thing, and he's the main character. So it's just not an act you would have expected him to do. As we've said, you're presented with people in this community, some of whom are antagonistic, some of whom are, well, are dicks, some people who uh, you think, oh, well, they're, they, they seem like reasonable people. Mookie just mm. seems like a reasonable person. You don't expect him in that incident when this racial tension is really kicking off to pick up the bin and throw it through the window. Be- partly because he's presented you as the antagonist. I do think there's an interesting way society deals with protagonists people talking about walter white in breaking bad like oh no i kind of am on his side and i'm like are you mental <laughs> yeah. this guy's fucking evil it's like watching the godfather and saying you're on michael corleone's side at yeah. the end but i think there's a weird way people re- react to protagonists like you really really want to be on their side it's actually quite difficult to the film really has to challenge you not to be yeah um, but it's also a, a kind of a masterstroke i mean i'd also I'd be surprised if he wasn't intending that to be a big moment. Do you know what I mean? Emotionally. Yeah, one of my favourite So this things. is the thing, like, I, I kind of wonder if actually he's sort of being a bit contrarian to his own content. Like, well, yeah. what, what, the whole scene's built around that moment. You know what I mean? You've called it do the right thing. Yeah. If that's not subverting the title of the film, what, what the hell's it doing? One of my favourite things about Spike is whatever question you ask him, he can present the opposite opinion. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and I like that about him because he is... Um, He's a promoter. He's a huckster. What one of the reasons he's had this career of almost well, it's thirty-five years now. And one of the reasons he's had this longevity is that he immediately categorised himself as a brand. He is Spike Lee. Uh, the maddest thing is that I've I've watched the film nine times. You you forget that he directed the fucker as well. Yeah, he wrote it too. And he's the main character, and I know that really it's an ensemble. He's and arranging this show. How, how old was he when it was made? As oh, well? 32. He yeah. totally goes into our, our amazement with characters like Alex Turner. Oh, and yeah. 32 years old. And Eddie film. Murphy when he was young, and yeah, Prince, and I, I suppose. I, I, yeah, I, I really like how uh, I think on, on a given day, Spike Lee could potentially. Then this, this is one of the best things about Do the Right Thing. Spike Lee, if asked about Mookie, could give an alternate answer. Because every character in Do the Right Thing is justified in their outlook, um, and I was thinking, because it's honest. Yeah, this and what I was thinking about this in relation to Danny Aiello's character Sal. Now, one of the reasons the film works so well is that Spike Lee wrote him as a racist. Danny Aiello on set, low level, refused to make him a racist because he he Danny Aiello justified that. Although he had these words within him, both as as a as an actor having lived fifty years, but also as this character Sal, uh, he had the words within him, but that he wasn't racist; that he was just a man that was driven too far on the hottest day of the year. Yes. Um, but again, this might be off part. I said to you earlier, trust the tale of the teller, and this might tap into this idea of like maybe Spike Lee is saying these things, but I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure he's right. I wouldn't 
I don't think uh, uh, Sal is some two-dimensional racist character. I think he's way more interested in that. Oh, yeah, and, and Spike never... And then maybe that comes from the tension between a part being written one way by Spike Lee and Ayo going, hmm, no, that's not what I'm seeing here. Yeah, and it's not that they... Uh, it's not that they disagreed on set. It was more that Spike said, this guy's racist, and Aiello said, I don't want to play him as all the way racist. And they went off, and the, the opinions show in the direction and in the performances. And just like with Groundhog Day, where Harold Ramis said, this is a comedy, and Bill Murray said, I want this to be a drama. And it's that tension that makes it possibly yeah. the best comedy yeah, of the exactly. last 30 years. And, yeah. and the same thing works with Do the Right Thing, because Sal is Sal's paternal, but that also means he's an owner. In a way, so Sal genuinely has genuine affection for Mookie, and there are times when you have to believe him that he considers that he has three sons, that he's got Richard Edson, Johnny Turturro, and that Spike Lee as Mookie is his third son, and that he cares for him in that way. He's watched him grow up. You believe that, but the flip side of that is that as long as Sal is there, he will always be Mookie's father and always his keeper. And I, I, what I interpreted was that there's that notion that you want to kill your dad. Maybe you want to kill your old man more than I want to kill my old man. And I've never really felt that to an extent. But Are you we, saying that's why he throws the bin through? I, I think there is an element of that where when there's two ways of, of, of hearing it, with, with, uh, with the same ears even. When Sal says, Mookie, there'll always be a place for you here. And when I'm gone, I want the three of you to run the place. And you can think, well, that's a lovely benevolent thing to say. But you can also say, yeah, but what if I want to do my own thing? It's that George Lucas notion of, Dad, I don't want to run the stationery shop. Yeah. This isn't for me. I need to do my own thing. And the, the older generation thinking, but I love you. How could you not want to continue my legacy? Yeah. Well, it's your fucking legacy, man. Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and that's the same there. It, and, and I think that comes through with... Lucas made a poor choice. Though. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think that's inherent to America. And touching on something you said 15 minutes ago... I don't know if we'll ever be in a post-racial society. I watch a film like Do the Right Thing, and the way in which I despair is that I think that because America was so fucked from the jump, because it was more than many other nations, and definitely more than our nation, it was built on genocide and slavery, literally built on it. Now, we uh, exported those things around the world very successfully. Britain did brilliantly at that, but we didn't have it on our doorstep. You can't yeah. say that Manchester's built on an Indian burial ground. Whereas America is genocide through and through. I mean, the last hundred years of pop culture. And it's also it's not that it's not that long ago. No, it's it's. Do, almost... do you know that thing? Uh, so John Tyler was president of America from like eighteen forty one to eighteen forty five. Yeah. And they realised his grandson was alive up to like a couple of years ago. Yeah. And it's because he had like a kid when he was seventy. Then his kid had a kid when he was seventy. Yeah. And which is like a weird inverse of you know when people have babies when they're fifteen yeah, yeah, and they yeah. have a baby when they're fifteen. Uh, and it shows it's not that far ago. I, I always think when um, when you watch films set in the twenties and you see like uh, Civil War veterans, yeah, like collecting, and I think my grandma was alive then when Civil War veterans were like, you know, yeah, rattling cups of money in. Yeah, yeah. And into this century, there have been Civil War widows collecting pensions from the government. Women whose husbands were born around eighteen forty-five or eighteen fifty who married oh, when them when they were young. about 60 years old yeah. and the lady was 20 or 18. Whoa. And these ladies lived to 90 or 85. And it shows you the, the span of history isn't that great. I, it's, it's it's everything at once, you know. It's, yeah. it, it, it's, uh, it's both uh, chastening and disastrous and heartwarming and very worrying that most of these things are almost within living memory. But, do the right, but it's interesting to think that, because do the right thing, to my knowledge, doesn't make any kind of explicit commentary on any of those aspects from American history, right? No, no. But that's but, what's quite good about it. Actually, no. that's just all, that's just all subtext. Yeah. And actually, it's a very modern film. Well, I th one of the things I think it is saying, and again, this isn't 
Spike Lee is not making this criticism, but he's making this observation, I think, and presenting it to the audience that um, uh, blacks were owned for 100 years. While that has still been the relationship, then it would be difficult to get out from under that. The situation in Do the Right Thing, as much as we love Sal, again, it's fantastic that he runs the pizzeria for the people um, in Bedford-Stuyvesant, but he comes in from Bensonhurst. He, do he doesn't live among them. Yeah. That isn't his community. And at one point... I mean, he loves those people, and he loves his pizzeria, and he loves what he brings to that environment. But when uh, John Turturro is saying, I'm sick of these Negroes, let's just go, let's go back, let's go back to Bensonhurst, and he says, it, we couldn't do it there. because He says, there's too many pizzerias. And it's true. He is an economic migrant, yeah. to an extent, because he couldn't open up the 412th pizzeria in Bensonhurst. It's popular because, not just because it sounds famous and it's been there 25 years, but because there's only one place that serves pizza in that neighbourhood. And, <laughs> and in that, there's almost, for whatever language he uses, a colour blindness to, to his entrepreneurship. It's like, if I open a pizza shop in this black community, black people are going to buy pizzas, so that's where I'm going to open a pizzeria. Yeah, yeah, and he, he does provide a significant service to the community. But again, a, another example of, of when I say the same thing heard with different ears. When he's in that same scene, he's talking to John Turturro and he says, I've been serving pizza to these people for 25 years. I've seen these people grow up around me, these people. Now, there's no way that Sal, the character, means that with any racial connotation. But you and I know as Caucasians that when black people hear these people, just like in Tropic Thunder, <laughs> you know, yeah. it has a racial connotation, with even with the most benevolent intent imaginable. And... A black person hears that and they think, that's a racist attitude. And it would be difficult to explain to Sal how it's racist, but it is. I can't remember, do the characters in the film, they don't take umbrage with that phrase, do they? No, because it's just um, Johnny Tatura and Danny Ayala oh, said okay, there at right. that point. But there's other moments as well where, um, I think you'll remember this one, very early on in the film, Demare, who is the block's patriarch, played by Ozzy Davis, wonderful performance. He's essentially a drunk bum. Come on, Demare! Morning, gentlemen. Vito. Okay. Vito. Sal. How are you? Ooh-wee. It's going to be a scorcher today. That's for sure. Need any work done around here? Daddy, why can't you do this to us and Pep's store deeper in the end of the Why don't you leave him alone? Huh? He's a good man. Leave him alone. Choose your weapon, man. You dropped something, man. <laughs> you are going to have the cleanest sidewalk in Brooklyn. Clean as the Board of Health. <laughs> All right, man. And quite, again, benevolently, compassionately, Sal uh, offers in the broom and says, choose your weapon, mayor. You, you see that the frame captures very well the face of the mayor, but behind him you've got Pino and Mookie. And Mookie's looking on almost as a go-between from... Uh, the Italians and the African-Americans. And you can see that his perspective is, on one hand, yeah, it's lovely that you're giving the mayor a dollar to sweep the stoop. At the same time, he's he's your kept man. <laughs> he's working for you. He lives on your charity. This this great old guy, this, uh, man, in, this um, man in his 60s who's probably lived in uh, New York through the Harlem Renaissance, and yet still he's begging for change from the Italians. Uh, it's, it's interesting. And, and it, you know what I mean? We're in... I see. I can see how that white character doesn't realise that what he's doing is racially charged, but he is still owning a black man. Yeah. Um, how hot would it have to get for you to do racism? 
and <laughs> is falling down in the same cinematic universe. Oh, falling, is do the right falling down is a magnificent <laughs> film. I, you know, I didn't know you were going to bring that up, and even saying that makes it sound like I knew you were going to yeah. bring it up. But honestly, I had no idea you'd bring that up because I think that falling down is massively misunderstood. And here's where you might think I go into an alt-right screed. But no, I think that that film's been taken at face value, and it absolutely shouldn't have been taken at face value because what's presented is a uh, quite obviously a man with um, diminishing economic value, uh, a Caucasian American born in the 40s or 50s who came up in the atomic age. And as Michael Douglas says, he did everything he was told to and he paid his taxes and he worked hard and now he's been laid off. Um, and Robert Duvall's opinion is like the opinion of many people now when talking about, and he says, well, I don't give a fuck. Essentially, he says, uh, yeah, you did all those things. You can't do what you're doing now. It, it doesn't entitle you. You can't go on this rampage. Yeah. And everyone's in this situation. And I think falling down um, lays bare. Uh, it, it, it isn't. It, it's kind of like what you've said. We may sympathise with that character, but just because he's the lead doesn't mean we endorse his actions. And you're yeah. not meant to be going, yeah, show them, you know. Yeah. Let, let's go back to how we were. That film explicitly shows that uh, Defense's opinions are regressive and that they have no future. He has no future. And that's not because he's white and um, formerly middle class and a, a pen pusher. It's because he hasn't... Um, Can't see the wood for the trees, I guess. Well, yeah, he, he just hasn't adapted. Yeah. Whereas even Robert Duvall's character with Rachel Ticketin as his uh, Hispanic uh, partner come deputy, he has moved on. And it's funny because uh, at the very end of that film, Defend Michael Douglas says, when did I become the bad guy? And uh, you, most people watching that film, if they're watching it with any level of acuity, they should realise that self-pity has to go. Yeah. You've made yourself the bad guy because you haven't moved with the times. Yeah. You needed to adapt. Robert Duvall did it. And when he realised that he couldn't any longer, his character is, uh, is, is on the edge of retirement, isn't it? He's ready to retire because yeah. it's a little bit like um, Sheriff Tom Bell, Ed Tom Bell at the end of No Country for Old Men. He knows he's overmatched. He yeah. knows he's ready for him to retire. Yeah. And it's a difficult thing to come to terms with. Uh, I love Falling Down. I think it's superbly shot. I think that's Jan de Bond because it's Joel Schumacher uh, directing. It might be Bart Koviak. It's bizarre to think that that's literally four years away from Batman and Robin. <laughs> but then yeah, Schumacher yeah. was... Schumacher's interesting because he really knocks he knocks them out. At that time, he was making a film a year. Yeah, and some of them are really good. Yeah, because it was Falling Down, then next year Client, next year Batman Forever, next year Time to Kill, yeah. next year Batman and Robin. Yeah. Uh, what was 98 then? Did he do anything? Well, then, he may have had a couple of years fallow, but he came back with Tigerland, Phone Booth and Flawless. Yes, yeah. That's mad how conversant we are with the filmography of yeah, Joel Schumacher. Yeah. And preceding that run, I don't rate Lost Boys and I don't know how I feel about Flatliners, but they look amazing. Yeah. There's uh, Schumacher's a little bit like Tony, uh, Ridley Scott in that way, wherein, just put it on mute. If well, I he's basically, he's mute. as good as the script, like Ridley Scott. Yeah, yeah. And Ridley Scott films always look amazing. Like, Exodus, Gods and Kings looks astonishing, but the script's gash. But then, like, a year or two later, you give him the Martian, and boom, he's done another masterpiece. Yeah, that reminds me, um, Do the Right Thing is a rare instance of John Turturro actually playing Sicilian. Yeah. He's in the Exodus Gods and Kings, we had this conversation, it? I just assumed he was Jewish, but then yeah, you pointed yeah. out he's not Jewish, he's Sicilian. He's played so many things. But your view is, yeah. the Coen brothers can cast him as a Jew, so it's fine. Oh, to an extent, if, yeah. Yeah, if they're willing to cast him as, uh, in the case of Bernie Birnbaum and Barton Fink, two of the most Jewy Jews that have been in mainstream but cinema in so the last 30 years. It's because cinema's so predominantly white that if you're an other, or oh, sorry, if you're vaguely other, yeah. you've got a broad palette of what you can play. 
It's like Mark about... Strong can play anyone from the Middle East for some weird reason. Yeah, why is that? He's Italian. I, yeah, I don't he's know. He's London <laughs> Italian. His actual name's something like Giuseppe Stromboni. But he could, yeah, but he, he, he yeah. could play one. It's like, uh, yeah. It's That's odd. astonishing to me. And that one of the, my favourite examples is um, the Maori actor Cliff Curtis, who's in Once Were Warriors and has subsequently been everything. He's played Pablo Escobar. He's been Colombians. He's been Mexicans. Yeah, it's it's mad that you can be Maori and uh, to Hollywood casters, yeah, Cuban. That's cool, you know, a Arab. Well, it's like I was, thinking, I was thinking of this with he's the... an Arab in Three Kings. He's Iraqi. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking, uh, it's like in Star Trek when they recast all the roles for the J.J. Abrams film. It's like I think uh, George Takai is he's Japanese, isn't he? Yeah, and I think John Cho's Korean. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and again, and, and then to be fair, Takai said it doesn't matter. He just represents Asia. But, but it's interesting, like, that's okay. And, yeah, it's funny... <laughs> but you couldn't make any of them white. Which you shouldn't. I'm not saying you should, but it's no, just an interesting but thing. But it's funny that, yeah, so the, the original... I don't know how the, these arguments are made, but the original character is ostensibly Japanese. Then Joan Cho is cast and he's Korean, and so uh, te, um, Sulu becomes ostensibly Korean. But then there was a groundswell of opinion that he has to be gay. Because George Takei is gay. I don't think that was right. I don't think there was a groundswell of opinion. But that's what happened in the end. I th- Simon, was- Simon Pegg and uh, Doug, uh, I can't remember his name, Chung, I think, they made, they made Sulu gay. And I've got no doubt in my mind it's because Takei's gay. It doesn't make sense. And Takei <laughs> himself said, there's no, need, there's no need to do that. So how is it that we can have a character that's ostensibly Japanese but played by a Korean and that's fine, but then eventually... We need one of these people to be gay. Let's make him gay because the guy who played him 50 years ago is gay. And that guy, that guy himself says, I don't need him to be gay. <laughs> True. I don't broadly th- think I think it's fine. Sulu, as presented in the new films, is kind of a bit of a hard bastard. So I kind of like the fact that he's the gay one. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. Y- you'll see this. Uh, I'm finally finishing the fourth instalment in my Shane Black write-ups. One of the films that fourth instalment focuses on is Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which to my Knowledge and understanding is still the only action-oriented Hollywood film with a gay lead or co-lead. Which one, sorry? Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh. Val Kilmer's Gay Perry. Perry uh. Van Shrike. Also, that's, although that sounds slightly uh, on the nose, it's, um, it took me ages to realise, but it's just uh, it's a pun on Gay Perry. <laughs> yeah, and that was 2005. And you could say that Shane Black's commitment to diversity is uh, just um, happenstance because he wants to run through every possible partnership combination. So he started with black guy, white guy. Eventually he got to black guy, lady. And then it's white, uh, as he says... In, white, um, straight, Yeah, as he says in Kiss Kiss, Sorry, Bang, white, he says... White, straight, gay, straight. No, hang on, fuck. White, straight, white, gay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He says, this isn't good cop, bad cop. This is fag and New Yorker. And like, that's the concept right there. There you go. And what... Uh, <laughs> you hope you're quoting him when you use the F word. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I was... Uh, just like Hollywood, I was twisting myself in knots about how... How on earth? Because I'm opposed to not. I don't know. I I settled on Negro. Is it's essentially the, the I, halfway house yeah. I got to. It's because hard to I just... don't like when it comes to reported speech. I think it's absurd to say the N word. But any use of it is likely to be entirely counterproductive because it detracts from the point being made. We might have to have a certain amount of self awareness that we are two white guys talking about uh, one of the most important black films ever. It doesn't make our opinions invalid, um, but. Tossing the actual N word about, maybe not. I thought Negro, when you said it, I thought that's fine. Yeah. In the yeah. context, it feels like, because you're kind of quoting a film. One of my favourite um, comments on the subject is by Cube. He was talking to Bill Maher, because Bill Maher dropped it a few months ago. In context, it made complete sense. 
but possibly I did detect that, and I love Ma, but I detected that he was being a little bit cheeky in yes. its use, a little bit cantankerous, and he knew that he he could have used a different word. He could have just said uh, house slave and field slave. Um, oh yeah, I remember yeah. this. Yeah, uh, and a week after there was a not really a mayor culpa, but um, Ma had Cubon, and he he said we've got to talk about what I said, you know, and um, maybe it wasn't a good choice of words. And Cube said that word's a knife. Knife can be a tool, knife can be a weapon. And I thought, fuck, yeah, that's... That's a really I mean, that, good way to describe it. Yeah, that. it's true of... That's why he was a great rapper. And I think he used it as a... T- you just used it. Negro as a tool. Yeah, it and that's, that's true of most words. It is interesting. Did you ever see that thing where it was uh, Jerry Seinfeld, Chris Rock, Ricky Gervais and Louis C.K. talking about stand-up about eight years ago on Sky? No, I don't know. It's very good. It's no. on their YouTube. Oh, a bit of it of dated now. Uh, not least a, a bit where uh, Lucy K talks about rape. <laughs> it's very interesting to watch in modern context. But Seinfeld says, we're getting a bit off topic here, but Seinfeld says, oh yeah, you two can say the N-word, pointing at Rock in CK. In the, and he's like, I don't know how you can get away with it, CK. And Rock says, he just, he just butts in and goes, no, Joe, you don't know. This guy, you don't know. He's the blackest white guy I well, fucking know. And, I'm, and then all the, the negative things we think about black people, this fucker. You're saying I'm a nigger. Yes, you are the niggerest fucking white man <laughs> I have ever. Oh, amazing. Oh, I don't think he, he could do that. Oh, what? I don't think he has those There's qualities. There's only two. You, I, never I, I mean. No, you don't even understand. Really? You don't You don't really know him. Like, I've worked with him. No, like you're a bit no. about... Uh, no. I wouldn't use it anywhere. No, exactly. These two... These two we use say that nigger on stage. On stage. <laughs> you guys don't. That's a... Yeah. That's, yeah, that's the difference. Two teams that's here. the difference that's between... Like, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. We, we say nigger on stage, you guys ways, don't. But that's definitely a pairing. <laughs> these two guys don't. I don't believe he says it in private. I'm much. giving it up just because it's played. I don't believe it's. <laughs> yeah. I don't think you've ever said it probably in your life. No, no, no. Yeah, that's it. That's the huge difference between you and me. I think. Well, you found the humor of it. Yeah, I haven't found it. Right. Do you Nor do I seek it. Like it's almost you, you're totally sanctioning it, and I it was never really explained why, but I just found it fascinating. I know. I know a little bit about that. So my first interaction with Louis C.K. was him. I've, this is. This is a nerdish admission. I watched the 1998 Emmy Awards. <laughs> tell me, Sky, tell me it was live on TV. On Sky One. Yeah, I wasn't there. Oh, so you, and, didn't just, uh, you didn't find it on YouTube? No. Actually, I don't know why I would criticise that. <laughs> I occasionally, I'll watch a film, and if I know it's from an Oscar, I'll, I'll Google, like I watch Goodfellas, I'll, I'll Google Joe Pesci Best Supporting yeah, yeah, Actor. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, reminds me, I watched No Country, and I was meant to re-watch Javi Bardem's, and I forgot to check. A fun one is um, any time Roderick James is nominated, and they have because <laughs> it's the Coens. Yeah, and they have you seen what they sub? Uh, they use some old drawing. <laughs> Did they? Yeah, of an uh, uh, an ancient old man from the thirties. Ah, nice. And no one no one says anything, <laughs> and it's my presumption that there are members, not just members of the Academy, but people working there that presume, oh, he must be publicity shy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but anyway, uh, so I was watching either the nineteen ninety eight or the nineteen ninety nine Emmy Awards at. On Sky One, and uh, the Chris Rock show was nominated. And I'm guessing CK worked on that. Cause yeah, they're, 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 he worked on that. BFFs. And, and um, part of the fun of the nomination footage was it showed the entire writing staff in zoot suits, dressed like 30s pimps with massive cigars. And it went through the names, and it said <laughs> Louis CK, and I thought, that's an odd name, and he seems to be the only white man there. And then later on when I was... Was getting... he also dressed up in this suit? Yeah, he was, yeah, yeah. 
um, he wasn't their butler or something. That would have been that would have been fun actually. Been nice um, and submersive, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then when I was getting into Mr. Show about five years later, I found out that um, Louis C.K. was working with Odenkirk and Conan and uh, Robert Schmeagel on Saturday Night Live as early as 1990. Interesting. He's been around forever. It's only in the last ten years that well, you can find footage of him doing stand-up in like as a young man, and he like later and he had hair, yeah. But he so what I so he's been around forever. Clearly, he's been down for twenty odd years. He's also Mexican. He's Hungarian Jewish Mexican. Well, TK is Mexican. Sure, I'm yawning. It's Luxembourg, <laughs> but this is like around the time I nap. Really? Yeah. <laughs> he's oh a... no! I, oh no! Actually, three or four is around the time I nap because I miss the nap like every day. Yeah, just if I've got the day off, I usually have a little nap after lunch. I nap on early, so I get home yeah. about four and then I sleep for maybe 90 minutes. It's quite naughty. It's, it's very rare that it's under 50 minutes. Yeah. I'm bringing up No Country for All Men again because, one, I'm reading the book now, and two, it was the last film I watched because <laughs> I watched yeah, it yesterday. Yeah. Um, but there is a weird similarity between No Country for All Men and Fargo in that they're both films about uh, a violent force of some kind coming into a town and it shocks the local law enforcement. Yeah. Now, Tommy Lee Jones' character isn't, like, naive. But at the same time, he feels this is a worse... It feels worse to him than stuff he's seen before. Yeah. Uh, Margie Gunderson in Fargo is more obviously naive. Yeah. But at the same time, it's still essentially the same idea. It's the law enforcement is shocked by this. Um, there's another similarity as well in which that uh, both they Lee Jones and McDormand become the main characters in the film but they're not for the most part they're not at the start I don't think you yeah. meet her until about 40 minutes in or something it's a long time yeah yeah now Lee Jones you do you, he is the first voice you hear but he doesn't become the dominant character until much later on and yet it's very much about their perspectives on it so but again they're very different films tonally they're totally they're both masterpieces I'd say um, because they have a slightly different take on very similar subject matter I've always considered... And also, there's also there's a thing of, like, an artistic voice is always going to be drawn to certain ideas. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, to put it really broadly, um, who's the singer of Elba? I've forgotten his name. Guy... Garvey. Garvey. He said he's, there's a thing about every songwriter is just always trying to write the same song. Yeah. Uh, and they'll try a thousand times. And they may sound different, but essentially they're kind of always coming from the same well, place. Woody Allen's made the same film 30 times, yeah. at least. And I, I think that... And at least half of those are brilliant. When we... Uh, you look at an artist... Look at a painter, for instance. They'll do the same painting 20 times. You know, whatever Rothko is doing when Rothko does that one thing that yeah. he's very well known for, he and Pollock is the same wherein whatever, their artistic impulse is to repeat that until they know more about what they're trying to say. Yeah. I think that's legit. It's, it's unfortunate. One of the unfortunate things about cinema is that um, it's such an extravagant and costly enterprise that you can't really make the same point eight times in a row over 15 years. Yeah. I mean, Bergman can, Kurosawa can... But this is the thing, this is the kind of argument that Spike Lee makes, is that he makes three films about black people and, and people respond by saying, oh, you're a black director. Yeah. No, I'm a, I'm a director. I'm a director <laughs> talk, making stories about people. It's both integral but in, entirely incidental. But this might be like, this, black what you just said. That might go to us having, uh, people having higher expectations of other demographics. Do you know what I mean? Like Scorsese can make as many films as he wants about detached loners. But yeah. Spike Lee somehow criticised for being a black director. It's yeah. the same way that, like, you know, I know you don't like girls, but when Lena, that came out, there was a feeling like, oh, this is a strong female voice kind of doing her thing and it represents generation, etc. 
And yet, then there were people like, "Oh, where were the black characters?" Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I, that may be legitimate. That may be legitimate criticism. I, it annoys me personally because <laughs> I'm just like, no. "What if she's just speaking from her experience as someone surrounded by white people?" And why is the same charge not level again? It would not be leveled against her if she'd made if she was a white man making that stuff. You sort of see it now with it's happening, sort of happening with Fleabag, going, "Oh, but she's posh," and it's like, "Oh my god!" Have you not watched that Benedict Cumberbatch show where he <laughs> plays Patrick Melrose? It's full of posh oh, yeah. people, but no one gives a shit. I've it's, got to speak to two of those things now. Now, firstly, I. I don't dislike girls. Oh, sorry, you just I don't rate love it. it. I rate it very highly, in fact. My apologies. I, I think uh, Dunham. I think Dunham's range is limited, both as a writer and as a performer. And I think that, uh, ironically, the most successful characters, uh, actors to come out of that show are the men, the boys, not the girls. And I think as well that um, the characters are irredeemable. After a while, it becomes uninteresting the extents to which they are narcissistic and poisonous to one another and to themselves. Um, then you said about Fleabag, and I'm one of the people that's saying, she's middle class and, uh, you know, poor ladies have been saying this for 40 years, Victoria Wood, etc. The other point is that this is exactly what they said to Spike. And Spike said, because Spike has always been, sometimes he's got a bit of a hair trigger, but all of his arguments are, uh, they're always enjoyable they're often humorous and they're usually dead on as well. And he said, no one criticizes Steven Spielberg for making films about the Jewish experience. No one criticizes Martin Scorsese for making four or five gangster pictures. And I suppose you'd say Mean Streets, Casino, Goodfellas. Would you say that um, we might be past that now? Because I get the impression that this criticism you're talking about is a 90s criticism. Now, because it's basically because we're very obsessed with identity politics, no one would mind if Spike Lee kept making films about black people for the next 30 years? Uh, I don't know. I, I think part of the reason that Spike fell from the public eye um, a, shortly after 25th Hour and then decisively after Inside Man, he made a picture called Miracle at Santa Anna, a World War II picture about a black platoon in Italy. Uh, Johnny Tatura was in that one as well. He's, they've worked together about nine times. It's funny that he's... For all that he is a, a black director of black casts, his most long-lasting and uh, profound partnerships with Johnny Tatura. Um, and yeah, there was a, a good seven or eight years where Spike Lee wasn't in the cultural conversation. So in a way, he's been absent during the generation of a lot of, and resurrection of these identity politician arguments, which come from the 60s and Marxists in the 60s anyway. And now he's back to sort of benefit from them. but I'll speak to, as well to something that you said when people come look at girls and they say there aren't any black characters they're bugging out aren't they they are the character of bugging out we're bugging out um, instead of doing something productive instead of pushing his uh, progressive energies where they could make a real significant uh, positive instead he goes into Sal's uh, beloved pizzeria which is serving the community even though the money's being taken out of the community What's the thing? Everybody loves pizza. They love pizza. He says, I want this change. I want black faces on the wall. Sal says no. And then he, when he goes through the neighbourhood, who is receptive to that argument? Nobody. Because they all say, I've been eating at Sal's for 25 years, man. Uh, the entire film takes inspiration from what's known as the Howard Beach incident. A uh, set of black fellas were driving when their car broke down in Howard Beach, which is a predominantly Italian-American area of New York. They went to a pizzeria to use the phone. Um, they were chased out of the pizzeria. And in the ensuing pursuit... Uh, one of the black fellas was ultimately hit by a car. And in response to that, uh, it was either Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson uh, said, I want the African-American community on this precise day that we'll 
identify for you. I want you all to boycott pizza. Nobody eat pizza on this day. And Spike thought, that's fucking dumb. <laughs> and everyone else did say, I'm not going to stop eating pizza just because some racist Italians killed a black guy. I like pizza. And that's what bugging out. And again, <laughs> it, it, it links back to girls where uh, would it be more complete if it featured more black people? Uh, plausibly, but at the same time, then this is the way in which identity politicians with their arguments, have their cake and eat it too. First, they say, no black representation. Then if you put it in, they can equally say, but you're not black, so how dare you make that representation? Yeah, it's like my uh, friend of mine, I usually disagree with, he pointed out uh, something in a, in a Guardian where it was like, cultural appropriation's always been criticised, but then the Justin Timberlake album came out where he went all country, and he said they criticised him for pivoting to whiteness. And he's like, you can't... What? Yeah, I know, he says, well, you can't win them, can you? Yeah. It needs to be. It just needs to be honest. That's what, and that's, that's and, and, and another. Sorry, another minority that girl speaks to is gay people. There's some great gay characters in that, but that's irrelevant. Yeah. It's just like no, you because you're a woman doing this, you have to represent. Ev- no, because you're a liberal woman, you have to represent absolutely everything we expect you to. Yeah, I don't go to girls expecting a, a, a real representation of the hard scrabble working class in New York or the very richest people in New York. I'm expecting a representation of that very narrow facet that Lena Dunham embodies and I I enjoy it because of that and when it has stories about Ray going to Staten Island and that's good too and when it comes to Fleabag for instance the the criticism I have of it is not that it doesn't include working class voices but that working class voices have made the same arguments and presented that milieu of uh, baldy feminist humour for a long time and that's why I don't find Fleabag Fresh in the way that some we'll people get into do. that. It's a bit of a it's a, it's kind of worms and I'm tired. <laughs> uh, but um, but these things always come back. Like whenever we talk about this sort of identity representation, it always comes the same thing. Just give them more voices. You know what I mean? Don't stop going. You don't get to women like why aren't you? Why isn't this liberal demographic representing all liberal demographics? It's like, fine. Just if you really care, petition studios to give black people voices, and then they'll tell black stories and they'll cast black people, and that'll be fine. And it's the same with giving women voices, or, I don't know, Italians voices, or whoever you want to give voices to. They need to be put in positions of storytelling power, and that's the most meaningful way you'll change Hollywood. Yeah. And then some white men will lose their jobs, yes, but it won't be Martin Scorsese, and it won't be Paul Thomas Anderson, and it won't be Michael Bay. It'll be hack hack directors (laughs) who direct films like Angel Has Fallen, or, do you know what I mean, or these shitty Liam Neeson tools. Those will be the ones that'll lose out. Yeah. And no one will miss it. And, you know, it's no threat to Christopher... This discussion is no threat to Christopher Nolan and J.J. Abrams or, I don't know, Andrew Dominic. Oh, maybe it is a threat to Dominic because his films don't gross any money. (laughs) (laughs) But it shouldn't be because he's very talented. Can I talk to you for a second? What? Tina, who's your favourite basketball player? Magic Johnson. Who's your favourite movie star? Eddie Murphy. Who's your favourite rock star? Prince. You're a Prince Ross, Bruce. Prince. Bruce. Pino, all you ever talk about is nigga this and nigga that. And all your favorite people are so-called niggas. It's different. Magic, Eddie, Prince. I'm not niggas. I mean, they're not black. I mean, let me explain myself. They're, they're not really black. I'm, I mean, they're black, but they're not really black. They're, they're more than black. It's, it's, it's different. It's different? Yeah, to me, it's, it's different. You know, deep down inside, I think you wish you were black. <laughs> Laugh if you want to. You know, your hair is kinkier than mine. What does that mean? And you know what they say about dark Italians? You know, I've been listening and reading. You've been reading now? I read. 
I've been reading about your leaders. Reverend Al, Mr. Do, Sharp Tone, Jesse. Keep hope alive. That's fucked up. Keep hope alive. Hey, that's fucked. Don't talk about Jesse. And uh, even uh, the other guy, what's his name? Uh, Farrakhan. Farrakhan. Uh, Minister Farrakhan. Right, sorry. Minister Farrakhan. Anyway, Minister Farrakhan always talks about the so-called day when the black man will rise. We will one day, what does he say? We will one day rule the earth as we did in, in our glorious past. Yeah, that's right. What past are you talking about? I mean, what, what did I miss? We started civilization. Man, keep dreaming, man. Then you woke up. That terrific interaction, which is exposing not just Pino's racial ignorance, but the way that black entertainers, if you're good with the basketball, if you're good with the microphone, white America accepts you. So in that conversation, Mookie and Pino are, are talking about um, mass acceptance of black entertainers and only certain black entertainers and the, the ridiculous racism involved in that. But then they go on to talk about, John Turturro says, I've been listening to your Louis Farrakhan and they talk about the, the great civilization that you had and when your time will come again. When was this? What, what did I miss? When was this great civilization? And, uh, and Mookie says, well, we invented civilization. And while they're talking about that, um, they're in front of... It, now, it's just, it's set design. It's Italian ruins. And it makes yeah, you think, shit, nice. yeah, everyone had a go, didn't they? The, <laughs> the Egyptians had a go, the Greeks had a go, the Italians had their time. Um, a uh, uh, Africa was the cradle of civilization a long time ago. You know, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was big. The Ottomans had a go. We, as British people, we did pretty well for 150 years. Now it's going to be the Russians or the Chinese. Well, it's America now, and yeah, well, probably the Chinese. Russia's kind of a bit fucked economically, but, yeah. uh, but China's certainly on the up. Later on, when um, Bugging Out is outside and he's demanding black representation on the Wall of Fame, he's right in front of a huge mural of Mike Tyson, nice. Brooklyn's finest. And you think, well, hold on a mate, minute, mate, like, turn around. And that's one of the things I love about the film as well, as you've said, that everyone's right and everyone's wrong. Uh, and Spike Lee made that intentionally, and, and Spike Lee said that in the case of the Wall of Fame, he's behind Sal. It's an Italian-American-owned establishment. Uh, they can do what the fuck they want. That's their right as an American. And Spike Lee says he's very harsh on black people um, within Do the Right Thing. And he does say that if you if you want if you want representation, you make your own pizzeria, make your own mini mart. Going back to the cultural reaction to it, and you talking about the kind of racism a mainstream white audience is willing to take, mm. I was really shocked that the same Academy who gave Moonlight best film gave Greenlight best film. Because I, I thought Moonlight was a, really represented a significant course change in the kind of films they would be willing to give that award to. And it's not just a race thing. It's about the amount of people that actually saw the film. Because yeah. as successful as Moonlight was, it's not, it wasn't like some high grosser or anything. I'd be surprised if it wasn't the lowest grossing Best Picture nominee today up to that point. I think it's the second because I think Hurt Locker's less. Oh, it's... I did check at some point. But oh, because Hurt Locker only took about 12, didn't it? It's going to be close, and it will. Own, Moonlight would only have beaten Hurt Locker because more people went to see it, and probably because it became a, a, something of a, well, a zeitgeist thing for a black audience. It, well, it will also be because I think Moonlight came out in award season, whereas Hurt Locker came out in summer and was already on uh, streaming or DVD. Yeah, but, yeah. So a lot of the awards, um, the award, the riches it would have reaped from the awards attention would have gone into streaming sales and, 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 and physical sales. Yeah. Whereas Moonlight, you would have actually seen, it would have impacted the immediate box office. Yeah. But, putting that aside, they, they let more, that, that year they decided to let more black voices in. 
and then this film won. And I know I'm not going to, I'm not claiming, oh, it only won because. Um, <laughs> the fact is, it won because it's an astounding film and people recognise this is Moonlight. Yeah. Um, so I genuinely thought when Greenlight came out, Greenlight, that's, that's Lord, <laughs> Greenbug. I just thought there's no way that the same academy are going to vote for this. And that's not to say that I thought Black Panther would win or Black Klansman would win. I don't know. I, I, I can't remember what the other nominees were, but I just didn't think Green Book. I just thought we're no longer in the Driving Miss Daisy era. Yeah, it's so regressive. It's, it's weird. But it's also artistically regressive because um, putting aside any of Moonlight's mentioning Black Mentioning Black Panther, Black Panther's mentioned in Do the Right Thing. Yeah, yeah. Because he's got they the comic, the comic book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, putting aside any of Moonlight's uh, politics or its representation uh, artistically, it's a it's a very good film. It's a brilliant film. You know, it has a, a cinematic sophistication about it that Green Book doesn't have at all. It's also very. I love films that are quite rich thematically, but th- uh, it deals with them all in a very deft way. Do, do, do you know what I mean by that? Like, actually, it's saying quite a lot about quite a lot of stuff yeah. in this film. Race, poverty, homosexuality, masculinity, crime, all these things. But it's got such a tight, simple narrative uh, that it just makes it all seem easy. And, you know, those are the best things, the things that make it seem yeah. like a piece of piss for that particular storyteller. <laughs> yeah. I'll put this to you. You're likely aware that contemporary reviews were massively over-concerned that Do the Right Thing would literally inspire black audiences to riot. And I've made comparisons, slightly glib comparisons, but I've made comparisons between that and 30 years later, the uh, advanced word on Joker, which was that it would be an incitement to incel violence and uh, there would literally be shootings. That hasn't yet been borne out. And as we've already discussed on the podcast, it... It's more about uh, a represent, well, an unpacking of mental health issues, um, and media manip- well, mainstream media's manipulation of situations and creating monsters. Yeah. Right. But um, I noted that 1989 in Terence Rafferty's review of Do the Right Thing for the New Yorker, he argues that Spike Lee doesn't earn the ending, that Spike Lee has an understanding of cinema. He has himself a screenplay, and it's his it's his understanding that the film needs a big climax, so he throws in a riot. I don't agree with that. I what totally, do you think? I don't totally disagree with that. Because I thought it was organic. Oh, absolutely. It's always going to build to something. Well, but... see, I mean, it's about <laughs> it's about racial tension on the hottest day of the year. Yeah. I mean, where else is it going to go? Oh, sorry. Maybe maybe I'm giving it a disservice there, but. It just totally feels like about it. It's like I said earlier, it's called A Guy Makes a Moral Choice in the Last Act and the film's called Do the Right Thing. It's just like, it's just all wedded together. I don't, I don't, I don't even know where to start with that criticism. Yeah, I was a little baffled by it as well. Uh, I didn't think it was... It was a, a very glib point of view for someone who perhaps had other, other reasons that they didn't like the film or that they didn't connect with the film but then wanted to present... Uh, a more sophisticated argument than just it wasn't for me. You've got to... Because it was a broadly positive review, but I, I don't think it's fair to say... Um, it's something that's often 
I think levelled at Tarantino, where oh yeah, it always ends in a bloodbath. It's it, you have to ask: Is this true? Does this feel true? Yeah. I read a review of Boogie Nights once that said uh, Paul Thomas Anderson masks his narrative shortcomings with bursts of violence. I just thought the thing that's inspired this the the career of John Holmes, <laughs> yeah. a man whose you know career did end in violence. You know yeah. that that thing where they go to the house. It's largely inspired by. Is it called the Hollywood Land Murders or something? Wonderland. The Wonderland yeah. Murders. It's inspired by a real thing, and therefore it's valid. And then you just have to ask the question, well, does this feel honest and has this been executed well? And I think it has. Like, I was never taken out of that uh, do the right thing. I was totally absorbed by it right up until that point. And it's, it's the reason I found him throwing the bin through the window shocking was because I was in there. I had made assumptions about that character, about yeah. whose side he was on, uh, about the kind of things he would do. And uh, they were shattered, uh, to, to no pun intended. That's the, the precise point. What, I, what I've been considering... About Mookie. Now, you said whose side he was on. I think he doesn't have a side until that point. I yeah. think he's specifically positioned as uh, something of a, of a neutral and a trickster. What he wants is money. He just wants to get paid. Yeah. That's what he's... And he doesn't take any sides. One of the first things he does is um, when he comes out onto the sidewalk and there's uh, like a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses or possibly just Christians that pass him with some literature and he says, Hell No! Like he rejects that immediately. He's he's simply out for himself. Yeah. And I think over the course of the film, the decision that he makes in terms of doing the right thing, <coughs> the decision he makes is to participate, is to finally take a side. Yeah. And actually, that taking a side is better than being neutral. I mean, we can debate the merits of that. But <laughs> going back, to the, sorry, just to hold that point, it's quite. It's not necessarily narcissistic casting to cast himself as that. No. Because if your if your interpretation's right, then it's about taking a side versus being neutral, then then actually Spike Lee has a very likable face. Yeah. He's not someone you you take against really from looking at yeah. him. Yeah. And actually so that maybe that helps. Maybe what I'm may, maybe my warming to Mookie's character is entirely superficial. Just based on that good feeling you have from seeing certain faces. You know, it's sort of a bit round. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. not angular. It's not overtly masculine. It's just it's it's a nice, friendly. It's a face that sort of draws you in, and friendly, so, maybe, so maybe yeah. that overrides. The, so maybe that's made me blind to the fact that actually he just is a bit of a capitalist. His friend, yeah, his face is it's friendly but definitely acerbic. It's open but but wise. Yeah, he is a he's a real Joker character. Yeah. in 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 that sense, in that a lot of the characters in that film they comment on the action but they don't participate. The um. The three corner men, the mother, sister, and Demare to an extent as well. None of them really get involved. One of, them, one of my favourite bits as well is that while, um, as the riots in progress, mother, sister's screaming, "Burn it down! Burn it down!" Yeah. Then, like thirty seconds later, she's screaming this terrible holler, and uh, you realise, yeah, like I too could understand getting caught up in a moment, and then immediately realising, but no, we've lost our sanity. We've lost ourselves in this. Um, I liked as well that. Having watched it again the other day, what made me what made me cry is that it's also avoidable but also inevitable, and that's why I, I disputed with um, I didn't agree with Rafferty's assessment because this uh, this fantastically vibrant real community is set up, but the only direction in which it can move is that climax. And it, when I say it's avoidable, the the pizzeria is only still open at that point. They're closing up, but it's only open because there's people outside that say, let us have some pizza. And he says, come on in. Again, paternalistic. Come on in. They want the pizza. They love my pizza. And he lets in um, 
Martin Lawrence's character and his three friends, and they sit down. And it's only because the door's still open then, past closing, that Rahim and Buggin' Out can come in. And so it was avoidable in that sense, but at the same time, something had to happen one day. Something yeah. had to happen with these... They are interlopers, they are colonialists. Even though we like Sal, he drives in. This isn't his neighbourhood. He takes their money, he takes it back to Bensonhurst, he spends it there, you know? I love it. Everyone's <laughs> right, everyone's wrong. Yeah. It, you know, it's just, it's honest, isn't it? It's one of the most honest films imaginable. Yeah, because it's complex. Again, I watched No Country for Old Men. And you can have a real debate about how nihilistic that film is. Yeah. And I came to the conclusion that it's not nihilistic because even though there's a pulpy one-dimensionality to um, Anton Shogun's character, yeah. the Coens and more specifically McCarthy are... They drop in hint, uh, wider views of humanity throughout the film. So there's, there's the kids who, when Josh Brolin, bleeding to death, asks for a shirt... You know, he says, I'll give you a 500 for that shirt. Yeah. And they try and get more money out of him. But then later on, when Shogun's bone is sticking out of his arm, he goes, I'll give you $100 for the shirt, kid. Yeah. And yeah. the kid says, well, geez, you can have the shirt, mister. And, yeah. and it's free. And similarly, Tom Lee Jones' uncle calls out his pessimism as being narcissism. He says, this has always been violent. He tells him a story from the turn of the century. Line, yeah. yeah. About violence that happened back then. And he says... That's vanity. Yeah, yeah sorry, yeah. vanity. Yeah, I love that, that, that's yeah. vanity. And it got, just got me thinking, well, is... I, I'm thinking, I don't think maybe McCarthy doesn't really have an opinion on this. Maybe he's just really super honest about the fact that it's wrong to go... It's wrong to say humanity is getting more violent, we're fucked. It's just more honest to say there are violent people, there aren't violent people, there's stuff in between. Now, maybe that's a bit of an intellectual cop-out, but I also think it's, it is true of humanity. No, nothing's ever one-dimensional. Yeah. And, you know, maybe maybe, maybe um, Spike Lee's doing a similar thing with Do the Right Thing. Just present an array of characters who re- represent uh, a range of morality and just see, see what happens. And as long as it, it feels honest, then, you know, um, you can kind of take away what you want. The same theme is seen in Seven, because what Seven's actually about is Morgan Freeman's character, uh, Somerset, becoming a cop again. He's seven days from retirement. And remember, he has that conversation with Mills where uh, Brad Pitt's saying, I know what you're saying, and you want, you want to say, oh, it's all fucked and it can't get better. It's not me, man, you know. And, and over the course of the events of the film, uh, Somerset um, averts his own retirement because he realises... I do still care. The world is fucked. It's not getting any better. But something within me means I have to continue battling it. Because yeah. he, he says, like, he says, I'm not better. I am apathetic. It's easier to beat a child than raise it. You know, I'm guilty as anybody. But that's what the, the resolution of the film is that, is that he's still going to be a policeman. Yeah. Still going to continue that fight, even with everything he's seen. That's interesting. What's the name of the guy who wrote Seven? Is it Andrew Scott? Andrew Kevin Walker. Andrew Kevin Walker. What's yeah. your opinion on him, broadly speaking? Because <laughs> his career, he's... He strikes me as a bit of a Andrew Nicole, like it's a little bit of flash in the pan. He was one of the first examples of a screenwriter where I was there at the beginning of his career, observing it in real time, and it made me realise that I, I don't think he's a flash in the pan, but screenwriters are hot and then they're not. Kevin Williamson was the same. He had Scream, Scream 2, I know what he did last summer, Dawson's Creek, Teaching Mrs Tingle, um, there may have been one more, and that was kind of it. Alan Ball. And that's what, like a five-minute period. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, Alan Ball Alan had Ball's American different. Beauty six feet under. And then he did the vampire thing. Yeah. So, so Alan, sorry, I, I, 
the second example I give you yeah. is always weaker. <laughs> I should stop at the first, but Kevin Williamson and and Andrew uh, Andrew Kevin Walker is well, another. What's the game uh, basic anything? Jose. Oh, um, Joe Hester has. Joe Hester has. Yeah, he had a bubble of well, twelve years where he was really hot, and then Hollywood dropped him. Um, I you think... even say it was as long as twelve. Yeah, because he did a. For those of you not in the room with us, I'm reaching to the shelf for the tape. Oh, he did Jagged Edge, he didn't he? He did Jagged Edge, and oh, that's 85. That. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So it was about 85-ish that he was starting to... And when I say working in Hollywood, I'm sure he did stuff before then, but that was one of his first big commercial properties and one that he got paid a lot for. Shane Black's the same. He was commercial between... eight. If you consider production times, Lethal Weapon, he will have signed off on that in 85, 86. Long Kiss Goodnight, he would have finished the script on that in about 95. So that's... Uh, not even a 10-year period. I've just remembered another thing that we were talking about that prompted me to watch Do the Right Thing. Yeah. So I love Black Klansman. But you were sort of saying... You were sort of dismissing it a little bit and saying, well, he sort of did this to further him do the right thing. Yeah. Do you still agree with that? Do you still agree with yeah, your, I think, yourself a year ago? I think, <laughs> my, yeah, I think my original assessment of Black Klansman was that I think it's a claim is due. However, within the career of Spike Lee, it's... Its acclaim is less pronounced, and just simply the film is less surprising to me because I've he, he's been my boy for so long, and I mean, I love Summer of Sam and Twenty Fifth Hour as well, which you could categorise as his white films. But this is one of my key things with Spike Lee. For me, he's a New York director, and I, I, that may sound pretentious, but I think Woody Allen is a New York director, and so is Spike Lee, and so is Noah Baumbach. Yeah. Now, they handle different areas. Woody Allen's is a specific interpretation of Jewishness in the 70s and uh, uh, post-sexual awakening, that environment in which... I mean, some of the stuff in Annie Hall, people need to understand the concept, the, the context of the 70s in which it was seen as perfectly acceptable and even challenging social mores for grown men to date 18-year-olds. That was the situation. That was... Um, and women even considered, well, they're dirty old men, but what are you going to do? You know, it's, it's true. Talking about Manhattan, not Annie Hall. Talking about Annie... Well, no, in Annie Hall... Well, it's, it's the plot of Manhattan, but in Annie Hall, Tony Roberts makes a similar observation. He says something like, twin... Uh, t- yeah, he says, twins, 16-year-olds. Can you imagine the mathematical possibilities? <laughs> it, it, it is played off as a joke, but it's representative of the times when sexual liberation meant women, you can do what you like. But as I've always said about the fucking boomers, it's not that. It's more like men can do what they like. <laughs> Because now women can't get pregnant. So it used to be you knock them up, well, you're fucking, you owe them 20 years now or 50 years. Uh, but then as soon as the pill came along, it didn't mean that, because society had an inbuilt reaction to it, didn't it? It's, you can fuck who you want, oh, but we'll call you a slut. Men yeah. can fuck everybody now. Yeah. But if you do it, no, 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 there's not yet that equality. And that, that's the problem I've always had with America's sexual awakening and America's sexual liberation. It just wasn't ready for the pill essentially, if yes. it had been further along, like, and I'm making generalisations, but if it had been an environment more like France, where they're just, they're more sophisticated and adult about sexual transaction. If America in the 60s had been France in the 60s, they may have been better placed. But as I see it, it just meant that men could act like hound dogs and get away with it. And if women tried the same thing, you know, they could be, if you were lucky, you were a Jewish comedian, so you could probably get away with it. Otherwise, you weren't, there was no way to do that in suburban America. Yeah. If you lived in Los Angeles or in New York, maybe. But wait, what was the point that we were getting to? I've forgotten where um, we started. Hold on. Uh, oh, yes, it's that Spike Lee's a New York director. And yes, he, he tackles almost explicit, uh, He tackles Italian-Americans in Summer of Sam. Um, 
and does it fantastically. That's a five-star film, bloody love it. And it was, he got game and Do the Right Thing and Jungle Fever that got me into his pictures. And one of Spike Lee's central tenets is that black people are people. And just because he's making He Got Game, it's not about the black experience, it's about fathers and kind of about basketball. And Jungle Fever, yeah, that's explicitly about interracial romance and marriage. And I think that's that stems from his old man, and I only found this out recently, but um, Spike's mother died when Spike was about 17, 18. And very soon afterwards, Spike's father, Bill Lee, who does the magnificent music for Do the Right Thing, picked up with and married a white lady. And I think that's coloured Spike's perception, not just of his own relationship with his father, but also of race relations. Yeah. And I think Spike Lee's, you know, he's writing his own opinions on this. This is one of the things I love about him. In the past, uh, for Mulberta Blues, for instance, he had the, he cast the Tuturos as the Flatbush Brothers, a couple of Jewish record executives. And at the time, contemporary critics said, this is ridiculous, this is so anti-Semitic, you cannot do this. And Spike said, why am I always being held to a higher standard than white directors? As a black man... I've suffered 70 years of negative black representation within cinema where black people are maids, mammies, butlers, pimps, prostitutes, criminals. While there are undoubtedly those characters in real life, that's what I've had to suffer now. When I make this picture Mo Better Blues, I include within it a representation of Jewishness within the record industry, which is reflective of historical fact. It's a negative representation, certainly, but those people do exist within the record industry. Why are you jumping on that? It's a fine argument. It's a good argument. And uh, I value that argument. But more, more, than, a, more than that, more than um, I don't even necessarily agree with it all the way, but above that, I value Spike's stance in defence of his film. I value that he didn't concede, that he didn't concede ground, because I think his intellectual argument is satisfactory and robust. And he went on. He went on to say, um, the producers of this film were Jewish. They wouldn't allow anti-Semitic messages within this film. As a kicker, because it's Spike Lee, he said, also Hollywood's run by Jews. And he never helps himself with shit like that. But I can't. I, I can't find the energy to be animated against him when his arguments are so thorough, and uh, they're consistent with my own objections to the mainstream media and the simple narratives that are pushed. And the silly hot button topics and the, the the dumb knee jerk questions that artists get. I'm Spike. It's my house, and these are my air raid sneakers. Tim Hardaway's gonna show us how to shoot when the wind's up. I got skills. It's ugly but deadly. No ugly lack of spin. Observe the ugly knuckleball action. See the ugly release. Any questions? Yeah. What do you do if it rains? You made a movie. Do the right thing. Jungle fever. She's gonna have it. School days. He's always been a self-promoter. I love it about him. He's, so, a, so he's he a sold, brand. So he sold out. <laughs> <laughs> but that, yeah. Sorry, that's a callback to a conversation that, that, Fletch and I had on the way here about whether it's possible to sell out. <laughs> that's a that's a really interesting point though, and I'm not sure how I can negotiate how I can negotiate that point thoroughly because there isn't the same expectation of not selling out within the quote-unquote black community oh, well, I said this earlier. in North it's America. Like, as, as for it... It's like, uh, it's like uh, Get Richard Die Trying. Can yeah. you imagine if a Radiohead album was called that? Oh, no, what it and I think that that's not to say that it's a monoculture. One of the most important lessons from all Spike Lee's films is that black people are not a monoculture. Spike Lee is middle-class black. 
out of New York, went to Morehouse, as he did with uh, Sam Jackson and Radio Raheem, Bill Nunn. He was at Morehouse College at the same time as Spike Lee. They're middle-class characters. Um, and I've been watching the fantastic extras on the Do the Right Thing Criterion. I think it's the first DVD that I bought when I got to California. You lived in America. So this has become callbacks to things you weren't present at earlier. <laughs> and um, some of the, uh, the documentaries talk about how... Um, how refreshing it was for everyone involved to have not just a predominantly black cast, but a predominantly black set and the different tenor that that put on the execution of the production of it. And, uh, uh, no, I've got, uh, got lost in my own argument. This is too big a conversation. Yeah. But it, it links back to what I said, wherein I, I don't think Spike Lee's ever made a decision which was explicitly only commercial. Every muse he's taken well, look. has been something in which he's interested. Look, yeah, it's just it's easy to it's easy to have integrity if you've got money coming in, basically. Yeah, of your of, yeah. of it already exists. Do you know what I mean? But Spike has never. I mean, what's his his most commercial film is Inside Man, and even that is thick with uh, interesting racial asides. One of my favourite things in all his movies is um, when in Inside Man uh, the the cops pull a hostage out of the bank. It's played by the Sikh fella that's also in the Life Aquatic. And during the course of bringing him out in this post 9-11, 2005 uh, terrorist-sensitive time, um, they remove his turban. And late, a few minutes later, he's being uh, uh, questioned, debriefed by Denzel Washington. Detective served my ass. Where's my turban? I'm not talking to anybody without a turban. It's part of my religion, to cover my head in respect to God. I'm a Sikh. Okay, we'll find your turban. Not an Arab, by the way, like your cops no, called me outside. I, I don't think you heard that. I mean, there was a lot going on. You were probably disoriented. I didn't hear that. I heard what I heard. I'll give you all the information you want. I don't need this. I need my turban. It's part of my we'll religion. Get you your turban. No, no, no. Not get me. I want my turban now. You just got to start thinking about the people inside the bank now. It's a dangerous situation. You got to start telling us about what's going on inside the bank. We can talk about this later. We'll get an office, come down. You can write a formal complaint. But for now, we got to deal with this situation. First you beat me and now you want my help. You need to start thinking about your co-workers. We apologize on behalf of the NYPD, but that was not us. We are detectives. We're going to try and find out. What do you want to know? How many were there? I think there were about four. How many houses? Uh, I don't know how many houses. There's 20, 30. I'm fucking tired of this shit. What happened to my fucking civil rights? Why can't I go anywhere without being harassed? Get thrown out of bank. I'm a hostage. I get harassed. I go to the airport. I can't go through security without a random selection. Fucking random my ass. I really lost I my I bet job. you can get a cab, though. I guess that's one of the perks. <laughs> Put the ice on your face. There's, a, there's such a tension <laughs> within New York about, yes, when a black man's talking to a, a, a Sikh Indian American... He would think, yeah, but I put my hand up. It doesn't matter if I'm Jay-Z or if I'm a bum on the street. A cab is not going to stop for me as a black man and in that, New York. And that sort of taps back into what you were saying. Uh, he's more New York director than a black director. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I just it's, They're all within that milieu, and that, there's the honesty within that as well. He could turn his hand to anything. I think he's... Him and Demi... I mean, Demi's gone now. I struggled to name two better directors than them that have done everything. I mean, uh, When the Levee Breaks, A Requiem in Four Parts, is this just... As astonishing and as, as important a documentary show. Did you ever four part documentary about Hurricane Katrina? Oh, so yes, no. And uh, the, the just the obscenity of the reaction to that, and the um, the yeah, the willful destruction of one of the most important 
areas of black heritage in the American nation. It's interesting. One thing I've been thinking about in the Trump era is how, you know, yesterday's conservatives don't seem so bad by comparison. And maybe they're mm. not. But it is important to remember the some of the failures of the Bush administration. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's like, it was terrible. Uh, it was so short-sighted of them. And it's principally because they weren't like them. So why would they care? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was. There's... Yeah, um, and it's it's laid bare superbly well by Spike because there's been times over the course of his now 35-year career where he has not made popular fiction films. Um, but he's always had something interesting to say, like with Four Little Girls, the documentary, like with When the Levees Break. And uh, there must have been times where he's been considered for Shaft, for instance. You wouldn't be surprised yeah. if he was, and the the obstacle would be that he would want to make it to his own. He would want to be too real <laughs> yeah. and too honest in Shaft, because um, Singleton got it, didn't he? The Christian Bale, Samuel yes. L. Jackson Shaft, yeah. and then who just did the recent one? Was it F. Gary Gray? I think so. I'll double check. Yeah, but there, there must have been times where whenever a, uh, an ostensibly black property has been in the offing, that studios have thought, well, Spike Lee is the natural... Is a natural fit for this, if only because he's black. No, oh, there'll definitely be that superficialness. I mean, I've got a friend who works at BBC, and she says whenever there's something being made about Indian culture, the BBC always just go, "Oh, let's get Mira Sawalta to narrate it," because yeah. they can't think of anyone else yeah. apart from her and her husband, who yeah. is in goodness gracious me. <laughs> yeah, um, and, and actually, it, they think, "Oh, this is a good thing we're doing," but actually, it's just sort of creating a. I don't know what the word is. It's just like. He's actually not diversifying among Indian talent yeah. or British Indian talent, those opportunities. Well, one of the key criticisms I have of current leftist orthodoxies is emphasising diversity but not diversity of opinion. If those diversities which they are corralling all come from the middle class, then you will likely get a very similar message from all of them. Yeah. Uh, it's directed by Tim Story, the last show. Tim Story, shit, yeah. Is Tim Story's black, right? Yeah, he did Barbershop. He also did, this is bizarre, Fantastic Four and Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. Yeah, because he's not um, overtly black. He's not really considered as a black director. There's there's several out there now. Antoine Fucker. Fuqua. <laughs> Fuqua. Antoine Fuqua and uh, F. Gary Gray. Um, and, I mean, Carl Franklin from the 90s, but he doesn't really get much work anymore. And another one is Clark Johnson. He was in The Wire and he's a director as well. Uh, hopefully you're finding my uh, uh, input on the film good because Fletch and I have a, a thing which is we'll decide to do something pod-wise but take so long to get it together. So I've watched Do the Right Thing. We're feeling yeah. really fresh on it. And then six months later we've done the pod. So hopefully you have felt this has been a worthwhile conversation. Well, yeah, I, I have not. Maybe you, you may have offset my slight rustiness on it because it's something that's... Uh, encyclopedic to you because you, you've seen it so many times I felt such a weight of responsibility um, to the film and also to my own appreciation of the film and the other thing is that uh, I know that it's this isn't meant to be a monologue if I wanted to just list the ways in which I enjoy it then I would write an article about well, that's it that's why I hope it is I say hopefully it's good is that I'm watching it the first time in 2019 but you've always lived with that film yeah. So even though our opinion on it's pretty much the same, even that tells you something about the film that you know 
you grew up, you've watched it for the first time in the nineties and found it relevant. I'm watching it for the first time now and I find it very relevant. Yeah, yeah, and I think that shows that not that America isn't making progress, but that its honesty about race relations will likely always be true. Yeah, and it's I mean what what if if anything I think what do the right thing is doing is it's daring people to integrate. I think it, it, that's the challenge. I think it's laying bare. Here's a, 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 in many ways a beautiful neighbourhood full of characters with whom we immediately empathise and enjoy. And it's a film that makes you laugh and cry and a film which is tense but also joyful and beautiful to look at. And the, the music, both the score and the um, uh, track picks like, do, uh, like Public Enemy are Which goes back to what we were saying at the start about like it's great that it's both... Re- hyper real, real, and it's stylish. Yeah. It's a film that's powerful and that's dealing with some complex issues, but which you can enjoy. Yeah. You know, it's always a weird thing where you think, like, I enjoy watching Taxi Driver a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why? It's fucking weird. It's dark. It's yeah. a fucked up film. It doesn't offer easy answers. But that part of it is it's presenting um, challenging, grim ideas about how society functions. In quite a beautiful way, a bit, a bit like I suppose if you read a really beautiful poem about something quite brutal, yeah. like say World War One poetry or something, I guess. Uh, I think do the right thing lays all that out and lays out all of the challenges of the of the melting pot and of integration and lays out all of the inherent prejudices which may never go away. I think one, yeah, one of the most daring and challenging things about it is that it doesn't have the happy ending that you might find in uh, Driving Miss Daisy or in Green Book or any number of race relation films made by Hollywood over the last 30 years. What it does is it explodes in violence um, and it shows that integration is hard won and, yes. and incredibly difficult. And it may be that we can, we can uh, never find a time where there won't be flashpoints, but you've still got to do it anyway. Yeah. It's like, I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, all marriages end in divorce or death. Yeah. But you still got a, you know, doesn't mean you shouldn't get married. Yeah. They're all going to end one. Well, all, all relationship is risk. Yeah, everything is. And, and that's one of the things that Do the Right Thing is showing. It's at, at the end, they, they don't even reconcile necessarily. It's yeah. more like you've got to get along. What's the alternative? And, and in fact, um, you might remember this, but in Inside Man, the pizzas they order are from Sal's Famous. Ah, that's really cool. Which suggests that... So Sal- it's in the same cinematic universe. Yeah, 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 the Sal's famous cinematic universe. We should universe. have a post credit scene where Samuel Jackson's a junkie from Jungle Fever, it crops up or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to recruit uh, them. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a challenge. I, I love that as well, because I, I do think that for the last five years, increasingly we've been living in silos, and increasingly we've seen... Remember I was talking the other day about... Um, Black Lives Matter, right? And I was saying, I think the the a little bit like with bugging out, the energies of Black Lives Matter are misdirected. When I look at that problem, I immediately try to find solutions, solutions that remove the capacity for black men to get shot to death by police. And I look at it in practical terms. You either decriminalise drugs or you radically reform the police force, but I don't think you can get rid of racism, right? And I look at it in those terms. Which is why the first option makes more sense. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then you have situations where 
that white lady cop goes back to what she thought was her apartment and shoots to death a man in his own house. And then just a couple of weeks ago, a lady's up at half one in the morning playing video games with her nephew or niece. Police come over because there were reports of a disturbance. They go in her house and they shoot her to death. Uh, a white cop shoots to death a black lady. And I think that's not about drugs. But I don't even know if that's about racism. I don't know what to. I don't know what to do with that. And it makes it something like well, that. Well, it, it has to be about racial. I mean, we don't know the ins and outs of that story. It has to be about just intense racial paranoia. That yeah. you see a black lady or a black kid waving a toy gun or whatever it is, and just shoot immediately. I, I can't. Un, I can't imagine the circumstances in which a well-trained police officer can enter someone's home without advance warning shoot to death the person who lives there they're not holding a nintendo light gun and when you're presented with things like that where it's not about drugs where it can only be about a poorly a poorly trained police force that is um inherently afraid of black people yeah and in a in an environment where like in terms of black lives matter america's never valued black life when they first got there it valued them as three-fifths of a person this isn't something that's changed over time it isn't like us where we've brought west indians and west africans to britain and they have uh, met racial intolerance, but they were still people, immediately employed in integral positions within our infrastructure, bus drivers and nurses, you know what I mean. Um, and when you're, when you're met with that data and those accounts coming out of America, and you think, fuck it, maybe we should just, we should all live separate from one another. And I feel that there are voices in America that are um, like black voices, Hispanic voices, that are almost promoting that. There are lobbies that seem to suggest that, that seem to suggest... Um, it's segregation to that level, right? And but what, but what I'm saying is, even though we have all this, we we have to try. It's just like do the right thing. We have to try. We just have to keep going, and we, there will be so many casualties in integration. But we I mean, have to do it. I disagree with some of the examples because I'm not sure if some of them are real. But I mean, I broadly agree with you. I mean, yeah. one thing I worry about is like religious segregation in this culture, in this yeah. country, because we don't have a melting pot. We're multicultural. And there is a big difference. Yeah, yeah, which is sort I mean, it's fine, I guess, except I'm not sure about the idea of just having a Muslim school and having a Jewish We should all just be mixing together and fucking each other, yeah. and it'll be great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because it will. Yeah. Because actually just mixing and being exposed to different ideas. And, and yeah, it's true. Like um, I remember watching a documentary about... Uh, uh, Jewish people and like how parents will in the Orthodox communities they'll send a rabbi to the university where the children are to make sure they're mixing with Jewish people. I just thought that's like one of the worst things I've ever heard. Like yeah. just let them mix with different people for God's sake. And yeah, yeah, it will shave the edges off your culture somewhat. Don't get yeah. me wrong, it will yeah. become less pure. And I do get why in Jewish culture there's going to be a paranoia about that because historically but I'm still not sure if it's a good thing well in fact I know it's not a good thing yeah at the other yeah. end of it as, uh, as our pal Burns says if you allow the ghettoization of an other it's much easier to dispose of those people this is what's happened in the uh, for centuries with Jewish communities across Europe they all live in one place so the pogrom's much easier you can get yeah. it done in a couple of nights yeah. that's just horrific and I think I mean I wasn't articulating myself particularly well but trying to yeah, the the argument I was making was one which it, currently it's popular to speak about cultural appropriation and we must all be com incredibly careful about our interactions with um, the cultural output of different races uh, to the point where... I, I, but the thing is, I don't want people to be... I, I want everything to be like the Beastie Boys, essentially, <laughs> where it's three Jewish guys 
Um, their black friend Bismarcky, they've got um, Mixmaster Mike, the uh, Hispanic on the decks. And they've and appropriated a bit of black culture and they've made some great art with it. Just Not just black culture, but everything imaginable. They've got shit coming from the shtetl in Russia and they've got European jewellery and stuff from down in Miami and Cuban influence. And there's a rock element to it. And, that, and, and part, that's partly... Do the Right Thing does that explicitly with... Um, like Spike on the commentary talks about how Puerto Ricans and blacks within New York have always been pretty down. They've always intermarried. Well, sort of getting into cultural appropriation territory. I think we both agree it's fine. <laughs> not, not that it can't be crass sometimes, but broadly speaking, it's fine. You yeah. can't police it. And it leads to great things. Because, I mean, that's what great art is. It's taking unexpected things and mixing them together uh, to create yeah. something surprising. Oh, the, as I say often, the alternative, going back in the other direction, is Africa Bambata sampling Kraftwerk. Yeah. Or I mentioned earlier the Miles Davis album where he yeah. used jack and, jazz and rock for the first time. And jazz people were like, what the hell are you doing? Thought, thought he was some kind of sellout, but uh, it became one of the most uh, culturally significant albums of all time. It's good. And that's Cultural like... appropriation's good. Yeah. And so he's <laughs> do the right thing. Not that it's cultural appropriation. And we should... Uh, yeah. But that's, that's what I get from the end of it. I think even in spite of this riot, even... And remember as well that the true villains are the police. The true villains in the entire police throughout are the police. They're the ones that fuck with everything. Yes. They're the ones that kill Radio Rahim ridiculously, outrageously. But in spite of everything that's occurred on that street in Bedford-Stuyvesant uh, on that hot day, we have to persevere. We have to live together. And even... You see what Sal... Sal could kill Mookie for what he's done. And Mookie could kill Sal for what led to the death of Radio Rahim. And yet there they are in this unusual father-son mercantile relationship... And one of his last words is, they say, it's going to be even hotter tomorrow. You know? <laughs> it's it's just, is that the last line? I, sorry, I, yeah, I think that one of the last lines b- before Sam Jackson comes back in is, uh, Senior Mr. Yeah. Love Daddy, um, <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Senior Love Daddy, is, uh, yeah, Danny Aiello says, they say it's going to be even hotter today. We've got to persevere. We've got to persevere. It's a great last line for a film as well. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. And the very last line is, um, this goes out to Radio Rahim, we love you, brother. Ah, uh, nice. But th- then I'll close with... Um, Hal Hinson, 1989, Washington Post, Contemporary Review. He called the film a moral workout. Ooh, and I, I think like that, that. I like yeah, that. I think that's what it is because, as we've said, every point of view is justified. It has some justification. It can be argued against. Everyone's right. Everyone's wrong. Bugging out. He's right. There should be black representation within that environment. At the same time, get your own fucking pizzeria. <laughs> At the same time, get a job. And as Joao Lee's character says to him, like bugging out you're putting your energies in the wrong direction you've got all this within you but this is misplaced and she's he says no it isn't i disagree and they just say oh you know we'll just have (laughs) to get on with it you know there's um the the point of view as well there's explicitly about the miscegenation of the races the moment where sal and um joali are flirting and you get the shots of uh mookie and pino both looking like I don't want my dad going off with a black girl and Mookie thinking, I don't want my sister going off with an Italian. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's all so honest and true, but we've just, as you said, we've just got to get in there and we've all got to start fucking one another. I, That's say, how we do it. Basically, <laughs> so our prescriptive thing is just abolish all, make all drugs legal, and everyone just start fucking each other, regardless yeah, of race. But, but, and we'll, we'll all be a lot happier. And that sounds like the 60s, which I wouldn't prescribe ever. Uh, thank you very much for joining me. That's particularly because it's not a film that you know as well as well, I do. There was a definite deficit there. Well, yeah, that's but why... you kept up magnificent. Well, hopefully, yes. Hopefully I didn't say anything glaringly ignorant about the film. But I will say, if you're like me and you've never seen it up until now, watch it. It's powerful. And it's funny. Uh, yeah. It's funny, we were talking about... I was recommending Blindspotting to you. 
Oh yeah, yeah. And I described the film to you. It was like, oh, it's about like these two guys, and they're sort of both poor in America, in in LA. One's black, one's white, and they get caught up in this thing, and blah blah blah. And you really um, astutely said, oh, it sounds really funny. I'm like, yeah, it is. Yeah. I think most people wouldn't say that to that if they gave them that description. They wouldn't say that sounds really funny. Yeah. But no, it is. It's really funny. Um, and do the right thing certainly is something that has uh, wit and drama and all that stuff molded together. All human life is there, and I realised as well. This I've realised over the course of 2019, my the, the two things I care about most is it honest, is it funny? Yes. If it isn't honest, I need it to be funny, and if it's not going to be funny, then it has to be honest. Do the right thing is both of those things. Yes. Thank you very much, Aidan. It's okay. Uh, Shall I plug what gigs I've got coming up? Uh, yeah, please do. Yeah. Well, I'm usually check my website aidanmuckcomedy.com. I'm almost always at the Miller in London Bridge on a Monday night. We run a new material night there. Uh, it's for new comedians and pro comedians, so you do get some uh, relatively famous people down there. We've got a great uh, New York comedian. Actually, it's quite apt. A week uh, on Monday, which would be the 28th, Monday the 28th of October, we've got a New York comedian called Janine Haruni, who's just coming off five-star reviews in the major newspapers for her show Stand Up with Janine Haruni. That's about her relationship with her Trump voting dad. Uh, it doesn't go in, in a, a direction you'd expect it to. And I saw it, and it's very funny. And she'll be trying out some new jokes at my night. Uh, I'll be emceeing. But as I say, all my gigs are on my website, so check it out. Thank you very much for joining us, Aidan. Aidan will be back with us on the Electronic Labyrinth when we discuss the films of Andrew Dominic in a forthcoming issue. You've been listening to The Evening Glass on the One Sensational Shot Network. I've been Fletcher Walton. Dates for your diary come in attractions. The new Ken Loach is already out. Sorry we missed you. Also, Gillian Bell and Michaela Watkins in Brittany Runs a Marathon. I like Gillian from Workaholics and from Eastbound and Down. I haven't yet seen her headliner picture. I'm pleased to see her in the starring role. On November 8th, A Dog Called Money is the PJ Harvey documentary. Driven by Nick Ham. Nick Ham's pedigree is so-so. I like the look of the cast, though. Jason Sudeikis, Judy Greer, Corey Stoll. The Irishman by Scorsese. Joe Pesci and Harvey Cattell have been mutually exclusive in the filmography of Martin Scorsese, so it's the first time those two are working together, plus Robert De Niro plus Al Pacino. Barry Primus hasn't been with those cats since about New York, New York. I think it's the first Keitel picture with Scorsese since Last Temptation of Christ. And in addition, Stephen Graham, Dominic Lombardozzi, Anna Pakin, the cast is fantastic. And of course, Jesse Plemons and JC McKenzie in the second decade of the 21st century. There isn't a film made that doesn't have a place for Jesse Plemons, or at least should be able to find a place for his talents. On November 15th, Le Mans 66 opens. It's also known as Ford versus Ferrari. James Mangold, biopic sort of thing. Solid three star, I should imagine. But it will be worth watching Matt Damon, Christian Bale, Johnny Berntal, Ray McKinnon, Josh Lucas, Tracy Letts, JJ Fylde from the Telstar movie. And he turned up in Captain America. I've, I'm interested in how he's maintained his career. I like it. And also opening on November 15th, a couple of Adam Driver pictures. The Report by Scott Z. Burns. He has been the go-to writer for Steven Soderbergh for much of this decade. The informant, contagion, side effects, and even the new one, Laundromat. This picture, The Report, features Annette Benning, John Hamm, Tim Blake Nelson, Matthew Reese, Ted Levine, goes on. Jennifer Morrison, Michael C. Hall, Maura Tierney, Corey Stoll, and the always welcome Douglas Hodge, who I really enjoyed in Penny Dreadful. Uh, felt like that show was overlooked. It's bloody fantastic. Uh, the dialogue's tremendous. Actually, I had a point of view. Actually, I had something to say. It wasn't just content. And the other Adam Driver picture coming out on November 15th is Marriage Story by Baumbach. That puts Adam alongside Scarlett Johansson, Laura Dern, Alan Alda, Rayleigh Otter, Merritt Weaver, and Julie Haggerty. I don't even know what Julie Haggerty's been up to. 
Thank you very much for your company. Stay tuned to us on iTunes, Spotify and Stitcher. You'll find us on Facebook and Instagram. We have an eBay shop, One Sensational Shop, and every penny that you spend goes back into the website and the running of the podcast. And the website you'll be funding is onesensationalshop.com. Enjoy your week and register to vote.